Nathan, the online pastor around here, and welcome to Parkview On The Go. Whether you've been going to church all your life or you're just checking things out for the first time, you belong here and we want to help you take a step toward God. We are just a few weeks away from Easter and we're excited that we'll be able to meet both online and in person this year. But listen, if you are planning to visit one of our physical campuses for Easter, you'll need to reserve tickets just like we did back at Christmas. For information about all of our service times and to get your tickets, go to easteratparkview.com. And speaking of Easter, if you have kids at your house or you have grandkids running around or something, I want to let you know about a really cool resource that our Parkview Kids team has put together. If you're like me, it can be difficult to know how to explain the holiday to your kids, let alone finding activities to do with them that helps them understand what Jesus did on Easter morning. So our team put together some fantastic Easter resources for anyone with kids, birth through elementary age. To find them, just visit parkviewchurch.com slash Easter. Easter resources. Now, before we get rolling, I want to say thank you to every single person who financially supports the mission of Parkview. Every week, thousands of people hear the message of God's love through our live streams, podcasts, or on-demand services, and that only happens because God is using your resources and doing immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. So thank you. And if you want to start giving to the ministry at Parkview, or you just want some more information, go to parkviewchurch.com give. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the service. out together.
want to give you praise because you're worthy of all the praise. We thank you for this, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, everyone. So, um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Earl. Uh, I'm new here on staff. I've been here since about July of last year. Um, So, recently, in my mind, uh, I feel like I've been having a tug of war between me having control and letting God have control. Uh, So to me, strength is if I'm at my lowest and I feel the most lost, I surrender to God because I know that I cannot do anything on my own. So by embracing a place of humility and surrender, I can get closer to God, be closer with God. So the lyrics of this song remind me of Psalm 147. It says, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered me in my head in the day of battle. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. Nothing 
can stand against the power of our God. Almighty force. That's dramatic, man. I mean, ah, welcome, everybody. Welcome online. Uh, welcome my parents who are watching online and celebrating their 62nd wedding anniversary this weekend. I went over there for a day. They told me they're so cheap now that, well, they've always been cheap, but they don't get new cards. They just keep a drawer full of the old cards. And they just get one of the old ones out and give them to each other and, you know, and save money. And plus, they can't remember, you know, what they got last year anyway, so it doesn't matter. So happy anniversary. It leaves more money for me. Thank you very much. Famous last words. Let's talk about famous last words. Like, here's a couple that I found that I thought were funny. Did you hear thunder? Hurry up and putt. Right? Don't unplug it. It will just take a moment to fix. Famous last words. There's 300 of us. That should be enough to intimidate the Persians. Yeah, okay, the guy's got that one. Well, here we are in the world's largest hydrogen airship. This calls for a cigar. She won't mind if I take the last piece of chocolate. Famous last words. It's my favorite for this week. Gee, honey, J-Lo is your age. Ooh. I do... <laughs> I do believe that Jesus' last words are famous for a reason. They have significance. Jesus had his whole life to think about what he was going to say. He was born to die. It was the divine plan. I mentioned this last week, but he had his whole life to come to grips with the fact that he was going to die. And as a reminder, remember what happened at Christmas time. What did the wise men bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Good, right? Gold for a king. Frankincense was used by the priest. And myrrh was an embalming fluid for preparing a body for burial. I know we've heard this story so many times, we don't really think about it. But you imagine the wise men, they're on this, you know, long journey all the way from wherever. They're like, dude, what'd you bring? Oh, gold. What'd you bring? Oh, in incense. What'd you bring? Myrrh. 
Seriously, you brought embalming fluid? Do we need to stop by Walmart and pick up a stroller? You are so weird, dude. But they didn't know it was a prophecy about what Jesus was born to do. And Jesus knew it. Historians tell us, this isn't in the Bible, but historians tell us that in Nazareth, when Jesus would have been about a a teenager, there was a rebellion in his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, the Roman army obviously crushed the rebellion because rebellions were dumb with the Roman army. And they wanted to make sure it was never going to happen again. So as a warning against future rebellions, they crucified 1,600 Jews who were implicated in the rebellion. And they did it along the main road every 30 feet for 10 miles that would leave an indelible impression on the mind of a teenager who knew that someday he would be on one, wouldn't it? And just so you know, Jesus plainly told his disciples, he didn't want them to be confused, here's what we're getting ready to do, guys, Matthew 20, going to Jerusalem, son of man will be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death, they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised again. I just want to make sure you're clear on the plan. He's talking in third person, but that's what he told them, and he knew exactly what he was doing. I am so grateful for first responders and our veterans who risk their lives to save other people. But this is like running into the burning building knowing that you won't make it out. So when he got to the cross, he had some very specific things to say. As a matter of fact, most of the people didn't say much from the cross. Because the only way that you could talk was to, was to push yourself up with your nails in your feet on the cross to get a breath so that you could say something. Most people didn't talk very much from the cross. And here we go. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, came, darkness came over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is the only time that Jesus ever asked why, uh, according to what we see in the Gospels. But before I explain this, can I just say that this proves that it's okay to ask why. There are times in our lives when we want to ask God why. We all have questions. Why did Oral Roberts beat Ohio State and mess up my bracket already, right? And we have deeper ones, like why did COVID-19 have to happen? And I had a conversation with one of our members this week where I zoom into the hospital room of of a man who had an accident at work and is now a quadriplegic. And and I was, he didn't ask why, but but I did. Because I knew I didn't really have great answers. But listen, if you don't have something going on in your life that's bad right now, odds are someday you're going to. And I just want to make sure that you don't avoid the conversations with God because you're afraid it might make him mad. Jesus did, okay? You see what I'm saying? He's a big God. You can ask why. If he, he, he wants to hear from you even if he can't give you the answer right now. And, and Jesus knew the answer, but he still said why. Uh, and here's what David said. In Psalm 142, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. I pour out my complaint before him. Like seriously, I'm complaining to you. That's what I'm saying. It's okay. God's a big God. Clovis Chapel wrote it this way. These words come to us out of a long gone past. Why have you forsaken me? We hear them 
first in the lips of an ancient psalmist, but he was doubtless not the first to utter them. They have been either articulate or inarticulate upon the lips of countless millions of perplexed men and women as the years have come and gone. Who among us has gotten very far into life without having this wrung from us in a tearful cry? This is a question that has literally sobbed its way through the centuries. It is, in a sense, an outcry of humanity. It is as old as man and as new as the pain of your own broken heart. At the tomb of Lazarus, Mary and Martha said, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Basically, what were they saying? This is what I was telling my friend David in the hospital this week. They were saying, why have you forsaken us? And Jesus was not upset with them for asking. As a matter of fact, what did he do? He wept with them. Even though he knew he was going to turn around and raise Lazarus, he could feel their pain, and he wept with them. So here's what you might not know about this famous last word of Jesus. Why have you forsaken me? It's the beginning of Psalm 22 of David. Okay, right before 23, if you remember when we did the goat back in the fall and we did, of last year and we talked about, you know, all of this stuff and we talked about all the things that, that, that G- led us up to why the Lord is our shepherd and how important that is, it follows Psalm 22 where, where, where David pours out his heart before God. And all the Jews would have had this psalm memorized. So what they did back then, and you know, they didn't have Netflix, March Madness, they didn't have anything else to do. All they had was the Torah. All they had was what they had in written form, and they didn't have very much. So they had the whole thing memorized. And what would happen is the rabbi would just say the first line, and then the students would repeat the whole rest of the song. It would be like us quoting, you know, four score and seven years ago. And, 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 you know, some of you that still remember the Gettysburg Address would finish that out. It would be like, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up. And you would know, if you know the speech, you would just keep on going. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Or it's like a person from my generation saying, just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. Right? It's just going to keep going, right? Or from the next generation. So no one told you life was going to be this way. Oh, yeah, my love life's DOA. Thanks, friends. It's like you're just doing that thing, right? So Jesus, the rabbi, is on the cross. He straightens up, and he starts Psalm 22. And here's the thing that's really important. Every Jewish person that was around him would have interpreted it as, oh, he just started Psalm 22, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I find no rest. All, and I'm, I'm, I'm skipping through here, but I want you to see some key phrases. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads, saying he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him which is exactly what they said. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint, which they would have been. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up. I thirst, remember? My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. 
This was written 600 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. This was the prophecy. Hundreds of years, they'd known it, and they'd known it, and they'd known it, and all of a sudden, it had to have been like, oh, wow. That's what Jesus is talking about. And, and David prophesied that a long time ago, and all of those things are happening. But why did it have to happen? That's interesting, but why did it have to happen? The Bible says that darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. Here's the thing. Theologically, God is always associated with light. And during these three hours, from nine o'clock in the morning until noon, Jesus was bearing our sins, and it was dark. Okay? Douglas Webster said it this way. He said, well, only if I find it. Where did Douglas go? Okay. Oh, Douglas is on my screen. <laughs> Try to stay with me. At the birth of the Son of God, there was light and brightness at midnight. And at the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. Isn't that fascinating? When Jesus is born, the angels are there and there's light. And when Jesus is dying... It's darkness in the middle of the day. So why darkness? This is the verdict. This is the verdict, the Bible says. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. You ever gone into a dark place, you know, like, I mean, obviously movie theater or whatever, but like, have you ever gone into a dark restaurant? It kind of makes you nervous, doesn't it? <laughs> You know, like, what are they hiding here? Darkest restaurant I ever remember is going into one of those fondue places. Remember those? I don't, I'm sure COVID put those all out of business. I don't know. But, you know, they bring you this vat of oil and, uh, you know, you cook your own food. It's really gross, but it's kind of fun at the same time. But I figured out why it was so dark. I mean, the place is just covered in oil. The darkness is not ambiance. They're trying to hide the fact that you could power a bus to Milwaukee if you sucked the oil off of the chairs in there. And so the thing about darkness is your eyes are going to adjust, right? After a couple of times around the pot stabbing someone accidentally, as you're going for the same piece of beef as them, your eyes start to adjust. And we've all been in situations where it is dark and we have to let our eyes adjust. Oh man, do we need this word today. Family I'm very close to, mom was talking uh, last week to her six-year-old son about Jesus, and he's six, but he's really smart and really intuitive, and they weren't even talking about the cross, they were talking about the Last Supper, but he knows the whole story of Jesus at six, at the age of six, and it made him so upset to think about the Last Supper because Jesus was going to die the next day, that he, he literally started weeping, and he asked his mom if he could take a break from talking about Easter. And he drew this picture of his heart breaking for what Jesus had to do for him on the cross at age six. 
After a while, they came back together and they talked about how Jesus heals our hearts and gives us a new heart, and they taped a new heart over the other one so that he knew why Jesus had to do what he had to do. Listen, Jesus said we need to have the faith of a child. Maybe we need to have the heart of a child as well. When is the last time you broke down over the fact that Jesus died on the cross for you? Maybe we've grown accustomed to the dark just a little bit too much. See, the physical darkness was a sign of the spiritual darkness. One of the weirdest scenes in the Passion of the Christ movie was when Satan was was walking around while Jesus was being tried, and he has what appears to be a baby cradled to his chest. It's this picture right here. But of course, and I promise I won't show it to you, if you remember the movie, all of a sudden, at some point, the baby turns around and it's this grotesque face of an old man with a mischievous grin, and it's really spooky. And they asked Mel Gibson, why did you do that? And he said, it's because I want to convey that sin looks appealing and innocent at a distance, but up close, it's shocking and repulsive. I don't think we can possibly understand what was going on here because, friends, this is when, during this time, God was literally downloading all of the sins of the world onto Jesus. Isaiah said, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of the sins. God was gathering all of the sins from Cain's murder at the very beginning to David's adultery and murder to Paul's persecutions of Christians to Hitler's atrocities to Tim Harlow's junk and he gathered all of it and he put it on the shoulders of Jesus. Paul said God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And at that moment, Jesus was becoming guilty. He was becoming separated from God. Quite literally, Jesus was experiencing hell for us. Jesus was experiencing hell for us. Hell's called outer darkness. That's why it got dark during that time. And I really want you to grab a hold of this because it's so important. We're going to go right from this series on Easter. I'm going to transition on Easter right into a series called When We Finally Get Hell Out of Here. And we're going to talk about heaven. We're going to talk about what happens after we die. We're going to talk about what it looks like. And I think all of us through this past year have have realized, you know, this world isn't as great as I thought it was going to be. What is the new heaven and the new earth going to be when we get hell out of here? That's what's going to be important. Because here's the problem. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot even stomach the sight of it. The prophet Habakkuk said, your eyes are too pure to behold evil and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Sin and God's holiness are like the same ends of the magnet. They just just can't be together. So God wasn't forsaking Jesus. He was quoting a psalm, but it must have felt like it because the separation was so severe. He was literally hanging between earth and heaven with no home in either one. And God took the sinless Christ, Paul said, this is the message paraphrase, and poured into him our sins. 
Then, in exchange, and this is the good part, the best deal you're ever going to get, he poured God's goodness into us. The concept of substitution is something that goes against our very being as individuals. One year for Easter, you might have been here for this, I had a real goat, and we talked about the scapegoat. That was really fun. He pooped all over the place. Yes, of course he did. You know he did. But, but I wanted to demonstrate for you the Jewish celebration of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Atonement means to cover over. And you understand the idea of a scapegoat, right? Someone does something wrong and they shift the blame to somebody else. They transfer the blame. Do you have children? You understand the concept, right? I didn't do it. She pushed me. He touched me. It's the essence of politics. Come on, you understand it. But what if you could actually transfer the blame? That was Yom Kippur. When Aaron was finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat, and he is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites and all of their sins, and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of the man appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all of their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Max Lucado said it this way, the crowd quietens as the priest receives the goat, the pure unspotted goat. In somber ceremony, he places his hands on the young animal, and as the people witness, the priest makes this proclamation, the sins of the people be upon you, and the innocent animal receives the sins of the Israelites, and all the lusting and adultery and cheating are transferred from the sinners to the goat, to the scapegoat. He is then carried to the edge of the wilderness and released, banished. Sin must be purged, so the scapegoat is abandoned. Run, goat, run. And the people are relieved. And justice is appeased, and the sin-bearer is alone. And now, on Skull's Hill, the sin-bearer is again alone. Every lie ever told, every object ever coveted, every promise ever broken is on his shoulders. He is sin, and God turns away. Run, goat, run. The despair is darker than the sky. The two who have been one are now two. Jesus, who had been with God for eternity, is now alone. The Christ, who was an expression of God, is abandoned. The Trinity is dismantled. The Godhead is disjointed. The unity is dissolved. It is more than Jesus can take. He withstood the beatings and remained strong at the mock trials. He watched in silence as those he loved ran away. He did not retaliate when the insults were hurled, nor did he scream when the nails pierced his wrists. But when God turned his head, it was more than he could handle. My God, the wail rises from parched lips. The holy heart is broken. The problem with the scapegoat was it had limited value. That's why we needed Jesus. Can't just do this every year. That's why the Hebrew writer said he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. 
Peter said he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. He took the punishment for us. In Charles Dickens' famous book, The Tale of Two Cities, Sidney Carton dies for Charles Darnay. Darnay was condemned to die during the French Revolution. His punishment was based solely on his forefathers' crimes, nothing he had done. But in the hours before his execution, he is visited by Sidney Carton. And after the, after the guard leaves, this friend of his overpowers the doomed man with an anesthetic and exchanges clothes with him. And then, pretending to be the one condemned to die, he calls to the jailer and he says, Hey, my friend passed out. He, he just, I mean, he was so overcome. Could you take him back home? And they removed the one who was supposed to die and he took his place because of the love that he had for his daughter. It's a beautiful story. And the next day, Carton, the substitute, was led to his death. But before he died, Carton said, Come on, English lit majors, be with me here. Tis a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. Thousands of dollars for college education paid off right there. Text your mama, okay? Tis a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. Jesus was led by the light of God's love for man, but it led him to the cross. It led him to our dungeon of sin and and our soiled garments of death and darkness. And we put on him, uh, and he put on us the garment of righteousness, and we walk away free. As he goes to the cross, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I used to have a a car insurance company uh, that specialized in churches, so my insurance card in my car said Reverend Tim Harlow. I loved that company, because if I got pulled over, could I see your license and proof of insurance, please? Yes, my son. (laughs) Hey, you got to do what you got to do. Sometimes I got out of it. But of course, the problem is that's not really justice, is it? That's mercy. Actually, it's manipulation, but whatever. I, you know, it's not fair. And God has to be fair. And besides, if that cop finds out I'm, I'm a pastor, but he realizes I have thousands of traffic violations, he's not going to call me Father Tim. He's going to call for backup, Right? And my eternal problem is that I have more than one ticket on my sin record. I don't know about you. I've figured it up today. I've been alive 21,732 days. I don't know if I average a sin a day, but probably that would be pretty good. That's what the cross does for us. If I showed you a bill from a hospital for hundreds of thousands of dollars, you would expect that there was some big problem that had gone on, some major illness, and you would accurately think that because the price was so high for the treatment that it was something really bad. In other words, the nature of the problem generates the cost of the treatment. 
So when you look at the cross and, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it turns dark and you wonder why this had to be that way. The nature of the problem generates the cost of the treatment. When you see what Christ paid on the cross, you just got to go, man, there was some serious stuff wrong with me. And there probably always will be. One of the best parts of that Passion of the Christ movie is something that many people don't even know about, unless you read the interview with Mel. He played a cameo role at Calvary in the movie. You know what part that is? It's a picture right here. Those, that's Mel Gibson's left hand holding the nail that's driving the spike into Jesus. It was a way for him to, to, to say, you know what, it's not just a bunch of religious leaders who killed Jesus. It's not just a crowd of Jewish people or a group of frightened disciples who ran away from him. It was me. So there are things we are meant to remember when we hear Jesus from the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It must mean that we find ourselves in the crowd and realize that the darkness is because of me. But don't leave it there. Even in Psalm 22, Jesus was quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you get down to verse 22 and he says, yet will I declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry from help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn he has done it it is finished that's Easter I mean that's what I'm talking about that's the end of the song so here's what I want you to do okay I want you to think of the worst thing you've ever done what what is the worst thing that the thing that you are the most ashamed about in your life it's probably maybe several but probably something just popped right into your head you got to understand that you can stop hanging yourself on the cross over that one anymore because Jesus already did it. You can stop beating yourself up because Jesus allowed himself to be beaten up. That's called double, double jeopardy in legal terms. You don't have to pay for something that's already paid for. The very thing you don't want anybody to ever know about you that thing you're most ashamed, most embarrassed about, Jesus from the cross is saying, yeah, I paid for that too. And now we can rejoice, Paul said, in our wonderful relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Did you notice you didn't do anything? Did you notice that? We can rejoice because of what our Lord has done for us in making us friends of God. That's the insane gospel 
of Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke to the people again, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Near the city of São José do Campos, Brazil, is a remarkable facility. There were a couple of guys that are Christians, and they said, you know what? The prison system in, in Brazil is not doing very well. Can we just run a prison ourselves on Christian principles? And with two full-time staff, they, they were having such a problem with it at the time. With two full-time staff, they allowed them to run a prison. And families outside the prison adopt an inmate to work with during and after his term. And all the work inside the prison is done by the inmates. And Chuck Colson, before he passed away, visited the prison and made this report when he went to visit. He said, I went and visited the prison and I found the inmates smiling. Particularly, he said, the murderer who held the keys and opened the gates and let me in. Wherever I walked, I saw men at peace. I saw clean living areas. I saw people working industriously. The walls were decorated with biblical sayings from Psalms and Proverbs. My guide escorted me to the notorious prison cell once used for torture. Today, he told me, that block houses only a single inmate. And as we reached the end of the long concrete corridor and he put in the key in the lock, he paused and he asked, are you sure you want to go in? Colson said, of course. I've been in isolation cells all over the world. And slowly he swung the massive door open and I saw the prisoner in that punishment cell. It was a crucifix, beautifully carved by the inmates. The prisoner Jesus hanging on the cross. And my guide said to me softly, he's doing time for the rest of us. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't, I don't weep enough at what you did for me on the cross. It's way easier for me to look at bad people and compare myself to them instead of looking at you and comparing myself to what it was that put you on the cross. It was my hand that was holding that nail, driving the spikes. When you cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because I'm supposed to be forsaken, but I'm not. And Lord, if there are people in here today who don't understand and don't have the ability to look at the cross and realize that Jesus did that for them, will you open up their hearts right now and let them just say to you, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I want your mercy and your grace in my life. I know I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I believe and I accept the gift of the cross. And as we commune in a moment, the body and the blood that was broken and shed for me. It's a stark reminder as we prepare for next week and Palm Sunday and we talk about the thief on the cross, that crazy thing that you did from the cross, 
Lord, I pray that that's happening right now where you're just looking down saying, hey, you want to go? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And as we prepare then for Easter, it is finished. Ah, we'll finally get hell out. And we can live in that now. Be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. During this series, I've been reminded of the extent to which God has gone to bring his sons and daughters back home. I'm so thankful that when Jesus died on the cross, his blood covered over my sin, past, present, and future, and made it possible for me to live with him forever. If you made a decision to take a step toward God today, maybe you decided to follow Jesus for the first time. That is awesome. I'd love to hear about it. Go to parkviewchurch.com slash next steps, fill out the short form, and let us come alongside you in your spiritual growth. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his eyes toward you and give you his peace. Have a great day.